0: Welcome to the Life Church STL podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages and inspires you. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's message. All right, here we go. Let's get serious. I have, I'm really excited about this today. Uh, I want to begin reading Romans one, uh, verse sixteen. And it's a short verse. It says this, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Just let that phrase sink in. Ashamed. Pretty strong word. Ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then let's read in Galatians what Paul speaks to the people there in Galatia in chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to this. So remember, in Romans he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God. Galatians 1. I marvel that you are turning away so soon. What was happening here is that in Galatia, there were people, numbers of people, who had started out really on fire for God, and they were strictly adhering to the Word of God. Man, if the Bible says it, that's right, and we're going to do it, obey it, live by it. And they begin to compromise and turn somewhat away from that. And he said, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Listen to this. Which is not another. I love that. He said, to a different gospel, but folks... There is no other gospel. So if you're taking parts out of the gospel and you're compromising things, you know, if you're ashamed of some parts and you're kind of like hiding that kind of behind the curtain, he said that's not another gospel at all. Isn't that powerful? But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said, you see, Paul's not just pointing a finger at other people. He pointed a finger at himself. Listen, he's saying, if you ever hear me say from behind this pulpit, preach any gospel other than what you see in that word, he said, let me be accursed." Pretty strong stuff. And he said, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what we ha- you have received, let him be accursed. So the title of my message today is one word. It un- is unashamed, unashamed. And um, so shame, to be ashamed literally means to be reluctant to do something or say something or take a stand because of fear or intimidation. And so Paul is saying, I'm not afraid to take a stand. I'm not going to be intimidated. Is anybody out there today? And so we only have one gospel. So here's the thing, and that is that we are in a, and these are prefacing remarks before I really get into the meat of what I want to say today, but. I want to say something to just kind of help you, I think, prepare you maybe for the future. We have entered a season, not just in our nation, but in the world, really, to where that for the first time in our lifetimes and in many generations, really since the birth of this nation, to where that, that you may have to take a stand that will cost you something. And and Christians at that time, and we've not been used to that, where if we say something, you know, you know, people may, you know, kind of dishonest, you know, and talk about us, but that's it. You know, we were never faced with a thing is if you stand up for something just simply that the Bible says that you may be fired from your job or that you may have a lawsuit brought against you or something. You all with me now, huh? And I'm just saying you know, I'm not certainly not going to be able to do all this today, but over time, we as leaders in the body of Christ are not doing our job if we don't prepare you with a strong faith to be able to stand and not be weak and stay silent. Because to stay silent is to be complicit. Thank you for your tremendous response. Anyway. So the thing is, is that all these things that we normally are, they're actually, we're being confronted with that, you know, it actually is costing you something if you stand up for it. There's a lot of issues out there, but actually I don't think that those are the main problems, you know, and I'm talking about a lot of issues, you know, that started really years ago with the abortion issue and now it's finally ended up with the most recent iteration is, the transgenderism, you know. And so, but but those are symptoms. They're not the root of the problem. And you know what I think the root of the problem is, is that somewhere a number of years ago, there were mu- there was much of the church in America who decided that they were going to water down some of the gospel and kind of soft sell things and leave out certain parts of the the gospel because they made us feel uncomfortable. And so here's the thing. Without belaboring that any further, here's the meat of what I want to do. There are certain parts of the gospel that have been marginalized in our day, and if we take those things out, then we have lost the power of our gospel message. I mean, we've really lost it. We don't really have any. You start ripping pages out of the Bible, you don't have anything because that book is all we've got, folks. And so some of those things are like, first of all, lordship. You know, lordship, you know, people nowadays accept God, Jesus as Savior, you know, come and save me. But Jesus doesn't just save you. You take him as Savior and Lord. Lord means he not only cleanses me of my sin, but he takes over ownership of my life. So now I live according to a narrow way, which is more restrictive. I can't be like everybody else out there. I've got, I've got a narrow road that I can walk on. Uh, now that's not really popular, you know. Uh, you know, people don't really like that today. And, you know, another one, you know, is uh, one, way to, one way to heaven. You know that we Christians preach there's one way to heaven. You know but Jesus himself is the one that said, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me." Yeah. I mean, dude, if you're going to believe Jesus, you're going to have to he's the one that said it. He said, "No one." And, and there is no other path. And so that that's and so even what happens in the church has happened for a number of years now is that we try to, I mean, we don't deny that, but in, in much, in church circles, we've tried to kind of push that and kind gun of down and, you know, because we want to embrace everybody and not be offensive, you know, because when you believe, when you say, look, if you don't believe in Jesus and trust your life to the sacrifice he made on the cross, that's the only way you're going to get to heaven, baby. You ain't going to get there by following Buddha. You ain't going to get there by following Muhammad or Hare Krishna. You ain't going to get there by, by finding your new revelation or spiritual path or the latest drug you took or, you know, or, or the, you found your guru. I'm telling you, one of the things that just kind of like oh, drives me crazy is when I hear someone every once in a while you know, will say you know with a dreamy look on their face. You know, oh, I found my spiritual path, and I had an epiphany, and and it brought me to a higher consciousness. Oh, I want to slap you across the face. <laughs> you, you you just like, I don't mean that. That's meta. I mean it metaphorically, metaphorically. And it's like there's only one way to heaven. We're thought to not be inclusive whenever we do that. I mean, inclusive is the big thing now. You gotta be tolerant, you gotta be inclusive, and which the word tolerance has changed. And so my my point is, is this is that these particular things that we have soft pedaled and kind of put in the back closet actually are the very things that give the gospel power for us to live out this new life in Jesus Christ. Without them, you don't have a gospel. Now, here's the deal. I don't have time, obviously, to spend on a a number of these different things. I want to take one with the rest of my time. One particular issue that's a gospel issue, a doctrinal issue that has been soft-pedaled. This one probably is much or more than any of the others. And I want to just break this thing down for you. And this one is basically, the theological term for it is called human depravity. Human, everybody say human depravity. And it goes something like this. We're all born in sin. We have the fallen nature of Adam. You know, Adam sinned. We have his seed in us, and that nature has been Passed down to us. So we are not inherently good from birth. We are lost in need of a savior. All right? That's, you know, basically what the gospel says. And that one little fact that when we're born as little babies, we are not born good. We are born lost. We are evil in sin with a sin nature just drives our culture crazy because they believe that we're all born good. They believe that we're all born good. We just need some help. You know, Deepak Chopra, you know, kind of, you know who that is. Some of you do it. Deepak Chopra says that we are all gods. We're all little gods. We all have a spark of divinity. We just need a little development. Now look, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who need a lot of development. <laughs> I mean, not a little, a lot of development. So that's, that kind of epitomizes this idea that, you know, we're all born good. But folks, listen, when Jesus, think about this, when Jesus went to the cross, He didn't just take our sin there. He took us there. The whole being, you. It's not just your sin that needed to die at the cross. You needed to die at the cross. You didn't just need a little help. There was nothing God could work with. It was a total loss, and God had to kill you at the cross so he could raise up a new one. Hallelujah. Now, so the thing is, we don't need improvement. We need to die. We need an exchange with lives. So what you see in that is that in preaching in our teaching of the Bible and in your witness of the Bible, it's very important that you do not fall into this whole idea that's been very popular in our day to go and tell people that God loves you and has a good plan for your life. And that's the gospel message. And that people accept Christ on the basis of they can get the life they always wanted. But the problem with that is that the gospel does not begin with the grace and the love of God. That's later on in the gospel message. And if you don't, if you don't lay out A and B before you get to C and D, honey, C and D really doesn't matter. Thank you for your tremendous response to that one. And I'm going to show you what I mean. So here we go. I'm going to love this now. We're going to go on a journey. So I want to show you how the Apostle Paul preached this message. How did the Apostle Paul preach the gospel message? Well, if you look at the first eight chapters of Romans, let me tell you, if you've never done this, you need to do it. Sit down. And just get yourself focused just on the eight cha- first eight chapters of Romans 1 through 8. And I mean, it is eight of the most glorious chapters in the Bible. Those eight chapters are basically the full gospel message, the way Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul preached it. All the way, chapter 1 through 8. So how did he do that? Now, when you see something. Remember, we're talking about human depravity. How did he do that? Well... In the book of Romans, here's what happened. Paul starts out preaching in chapter one about how lost we are, how we're all born in sin. He goes through chapter two doing that. He starts again in chapter three. And then finally, he ends up that segment. So he preaches three and a half chapters. Are you with me now? Out of eight. The first three and a half. He preaches about how lost we are, how guilty we are, before he ever gets to anything about Jesus, the cross, grace, faith. Are you with me? And he ends that whole discourse this way. You ready? Romans 3, verse 9. So Paul says, what then? Are we not better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And finally, at that point, we can say, okay, I've got it, Paul. You you, you can stop. I've got it. And Paul goes, and he said, no, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of their asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. All right, Paul, I got it. No, no. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Paul, I've got it. No, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law... That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the flesh, of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. It's like, Paul, I'm drinking water from a fire hose here, Paul. You know, because if I was preaching this, you might hear me say, folks, we're all lost in sin. We're born in sin. We're in desperate need of a Savior. You know, you know but then I would quickly then move on and say, but Christ has redeemed you, and he's come. He loves you, and on and on. Not Paul. Paul goes on, you're a miserable sinner. You are lost. You, your mouth is full of poison. I got it, Paul. No, 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 no. There's no one good. You're all g-. And he goes on and on. Why does Paul belabor this so much? Why? You want to know why he does? Because until you really grasp the fact of how lost you are without Christ, how hopeless you really are. See, we'll hear that given token mentioned, you know, and then passed on. But it's like it goes right over until you know how desperately evil you are and messed up and how sinful you are, how helpless you are, how damned you are and bound for hell you are lost until you get that you are lost, that there's no hope for you, that you're, you're bound for Hell until you get that to the point to where that literally you feel your chest trembling under the weight of that, until you get to that point, you will never really fully give your life over to Christ. You may pray a prayer, but you won't cast your whole life on him. That's why Paul spends three and a half chapters of this. He's got to convince people. Folks, do you get it? You are damned. You're totally lost. The reason is, you know, if you go to Jewelry, you know they always take the diamond and place it on the black cloth, right? It's because until you place that diamond on that black cloth, the diamond will not shine as brilliantly as what it is. What Paul's doing here is he's laying out a black cloth so you can see the true brilliance of Christ and what he's done. Are y'all with me today? Ah I like that. So you're guilty. Aren't you all glad you came today? You're guilty! You're damned. You're hopeless. I think this, the lack of this, I think, is one of the main reasons why that there is a, a little fear of the Lord in Christians' lives and in the church. Because much of the fear of the Lord comes From realizing if God doesn't come and save us, we are doomed. I was in the church church one day in the middle of the week. I was in there praying. Some woman walks in, it was an insurance salesman. And when she starts talking to me, and we got over to spiritual things, and she told me, she said, well, she says, I, I'm sorry, but I just feel you, Christians, she says, that, that you use God as your faith as a crutch. It's a crutch. That's what it is. And I looked at her, and I told her, I said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but my faith in God is not a crutch. It's a wheelchair. <laughs> because I am not just lame in one leg. I am totally helpless and hopeless without Christ. So anyway, Paul lays all this out. He ends that in verse 20. And then, uh, then he moves to the next verse, verse 21. Watch this. He says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God Through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And I'm telling you, after all of that misery and blackness and dark, once I feel the full impact of how miserably lost I am, these words come as a glorious balm, honey to my soul. He says, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ah! You know, Martin Luther, he lived in the 16th century. He was a priest, lived in a monastery. All the younger, his younger adult years lived there trying diligently to to obey the law with perfection. I mean, he tried hard. After years, he said, the more I tried, the further I felt I was away from God. He said, I became more miserable. And he says, after a while, listen to this, Martin Luther says, I came to the place where I hated the word righteousness. I hated it. Anytime I saw it in Scripture, I hated and despised this word. He said, because I always thought of the righteousness as being my righteousness, my ability or my effort to try to gain a life that is pleasing to God. It's my works of righteousness, and I never was able to attain that. And he said, so I always hated that word until I read this passage right here that we just read. He said, once I read it, all of a sudden the heavens opened up. And he said, i Joy filled my soul. And he said, I fell in love with the word righteousness because for the first time I realized that it wasn't talking about my righteousness. It was talking about an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, the righteousness of someone else That has been given to me and I found that that someone else was Jesus who happened to keep the law perfectly so he was perfect in righteousness and through shedding his innocent righteous blood for me he poured out his life blood so that his righteousness could be given to me hallelujah I'm not righteousness because my righteous because of what I do. I'm righteous because of an imputation that has been given to me of a righteousness that is foreign to me. Oh, I tell you that's run around the room territory there. So anyway, watch this now. I love this. So, Paul goes on from there. And Paul begins to lay out all of the little details about how this righteousness works by faith, through grace. He talks about Abraham. Abraham received it that way, spends a good deal of time there. Talks about Adam, how that we're born after the seed of Adam, just what I told you a while ago. He lays that out for about a chapter. And then he gets to chapter 6, and in chapter 6, it's interesting because he kind of stops and he says, "Now, now, wait a minute. He starts it out by saying, so shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? It's like Paul stopped and said, "Now, wait a minute. I don't want you to get the wrong impression here. This free grace and this imputed righteousness is not given to us freely so that now we can go live however we want to. He said, you don't abuse this grace of God that's given to you. The righteousness of God is given to you, not so you can live freely how you want to, but so you can be free to draw closer to Christ and become more like him, fall in love with him. So he goes through that in chapter 6. So he's laying all this out, and then he gets to chapter 7. And it's like chapter 7 is like a parenthetical chapter that kind of he asserts in, in the middle there. And I love it. It's interesting because here's what he does. In chapter 7, verse 15, now after talking about all that righteousness and stuff, he says this, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is there anybody here that relates to that? Anybody that identifies with that? It's like, okay, Paul, where are you going, baby? I mean, come on, get back to this righteousness stuff. You know, you're talking about what? You do what you hate. This is you. Do you realize who you are, Paul? You're the apostle Paul. You're going to end up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. You mean you do things you don't want to do and you don't do things that you want to do? Watch this. He said, if then, verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now watch this, because like what Paul's doing here, he's telling us the struggle, this Christian struggle But it's like he starts to give us little windows. But he's saying, but I'm getting a truth here. I'm I'm seeing seeing a law here. And, and And he tells us that when he says, but now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Then he goes on, verse 18, for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me. But how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, Paul's in the habit of doing this, just going over and over. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. What's he doing? He's beginning to identify A war that's going on between the spirit and the flesh. And he says in verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. That's that's the inner man. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now listen to this. You see what he's doing here? Paul got through telling us that, come on, we're all born in sin, but thank God through the blood of Christ we've been made righteous. It's free of uh, imputed righteousness to walk with God. And then right in the middle, of it, he says, but now wait a minute. And he tells us about the struggle that he still has. That he's not walking this thing out perfectly. Why would Paul tell us about this? It seems like it's pouring a little cold water on all this message, righteousness message. But Paul's doing it because he realized if, if you don't get this part, that when the struggle happens, you will tend to think that what you thought you knew is not really what you knew. You will think it doesn't work, that something's wrong in it uh, about it, that you didn't really get what you thought you got. Are you all with me now? I'm telling so many people have had that point where they say, you know, I thought I was saved. I thought I'd give my life to Christ. But if this is still going on and I'm still falling into these things, then, you know, God must have not done any work in my life. And Paul says, I I want you to understand that there's this law going on, two laws actually. There's a law of sin in your flesh. That's fighting or warring against the real you on the inside. Are you with me now? And Paul is is identifying that basically to tell us. You've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the real you, the inner man. But there's this flesh out here that is constantly trying to fight against you, the real you, the inner man, and trying to pull you back into sin. Are you with me now? And understanding that law is the only way you have a chance to get victory over it and conquer it and be free. So Paul says that. So now Paul deals with this struggle in here. So he's saying, okay, you've been made righteous, but you know what? You're not going to walk it out perfectly. You're going to still, you're still human. You still do stupid things. You still get bad attitudes. You're still a jerk sometimes. Come on, don't look at me so righteously (laughs) pious. Listen, that's the way it is. Are you with me now? You're still a mess. You still don't walk this thing perfectly. You ready for this? And so, boom, he opens up the next chapter in verse 1. And how does he start? He said, there is therefore, if you ever heard me preach, you know, I always say, Therefore, always refers back to what was just said. It means because of what I just said. So he says, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Ha! You get it? When the struggle happens, know that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There will be conviction And you listen to the conviction. But the difference between conviction and condemnation is that condemnation judges and damns you with no hope. Conviction pricks your soul to draw you close to God and gives you hope and a chance to make things right. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You ready? Who do not walk according to the spirit, but according to the the flesh, but according to the spirit. Oh, man. It's like Paul's always setting us up with like, there's no condemnation. These great liberating truths. And then it's like he brings us right back down. There's no (laughs) condemnation. He said, to those who will walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So so it's not unqualified. It's conditional. But don't miss this. What does that mean? Those who walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Well, in the Greek, if you look up the word uh, walk, here's what it means. It means to walk by rule or according to rule. And what it means is, is that you walk in the flesh or do you walk in the spirit by rule? I mean, you may walk in the flesh by rule and sometimes end up falling into doing something righteous. Or you may walk in righteousness by rule and every once in a while fall into walking in the flesh, doing something. Are y'all with me now? What Paul's is saying is what is the rule of your walk? The rule of life. It's kind of like this. The rule would be, here's my rule, I'm, my rule of my walk is I'm heading in this direction and I'm walking by faith, drawing close, whoops, I stumbled there, but I'm still walking this way, walking close, whoops, I stumbled, but I, my rule of walk is I'm headed that way. You get that? So he goes on to say this. Oh, I love this. I keep watching the clock because I'm going to make sure I get this all in and I'm such a long-winded preacher. Listen. So he says this. For verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. Oh, I got to start that again. For the Law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. How? Oh, it's getting better. Paul's saying, yeah, there is this war between the flesh and the spirit you got to deal with. And there's no condemnation as you walk as a rule toward Christ, even though you stumble, that, that's true. But I want you also to know that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? The key is noticing when it says the law of the spirit of life, it's a capital S spirit. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying there is a new rule. Of life in you it's called a person the Holy Spirit and you don't walk according to a law of ordinances and requirements you walk according to a law of listening to and hearing the voice of the person who's on the inside of you being sensitive to his voice and what he's leading and telling you to do he's saying that law of the Spirit the person of the Holy Spirit of life in Christ Jesus That law of the person being in you, leading you, ruling you, guiding you, influencing you, and empowering you, that law is what breaks the law of sin and death. I love that. And then he says this in verse 11. Go down, go to verse 11, Romans 11. He says, but... If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Oh, I love this. What's he saying? Oh, yeah. He said that rule or law of the spirit, the person of the spirit of the Holy Spirit living in you, that's the law that you live by that conquers the law of sin. But he says this, because this flesh is always warring against you. But what is he saying here when he says, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, that same spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. It's not talking there about the end time when we go to be with Jesus and we're given a new body. That's not what we're talking about. He's talking about here and now. He's saying that as you walk, as your rule of life being, listening to the Holy Spirit, obeying the Word of God, that what happens is eventually the person of the Holy Spirit of life will end up literally, that life in your spirit will end up starting to influence your very flesh to where your flesh will change, where gradually your flesh won't bother you as much anymore. Temptation will quiet its voice and you'll walk in peace. It just gets better. So anyway, so you take that and then it goes on. Uh, I'm going to skip over that. It's just All right, let me, let me just do it quick listen. Verse 26, chapter eight verse 26. So he goes on, like, do you all see every time Paul breaks open another one of these things, he started with, he's, he's preaching the gospel. He's saying, we're miserable sinners, lost doomed. but Christ gave righteousness, all that, yeah, we got to struggle, but all these other things, there's the rule of life, the spirit in us, moving us forward, all this. And then, so he's always introducing things that are basically part of what Christ has given us by his spirit to be able to walk out this life in victory, and close to God. And here's another one. He says in verse 26, "Likewise, the Holy Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And I think, I think, what? What? You ready for this? I think, what? You mean that God, the Holy Ghost, is praying for me? I mean, you know, when you get in trouble, you call your friends and ask them to pray for you. But honey, sometimes their prayers get answered and sometimes they don't. But I didn't even ask the Holy Ghost and he's praying for me every day and I've got news for you. He always gets his prayers answered. You want to know why? Because read on. He says, verse 27, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He's praying the perfect will of God for us. Verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good according to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, yeah, people, you hear people speak that all the time. You know, oh, all things work together for good. I mean, it aggravates you sometimes. Even people out there don't even, I mean, maybe they're once a Christian, they're backslidden or something. Oh, things work together for good. I thought, you dummy, listen, you don't realize you're speaking this thing and you don't even understand the context of this thing. You can't get to Romans eight twenty-eight where all things work together for good. You can't even get there without working your way through This whole redemption process. This verse is not one of those kind of, it rains upon the just and the unjust verses. That's not what this is. Oh, anyway, all right, now. So after that, listen to this. There's so, isn't this good? Now, folks, stop and think of this a moment. Where we started out, you're lost. You're a miserable sinner. You wretched. You're doomed. You have no hope. That's where we started. And now here is where we are. But you see that we could never get here and really appreciate this to the full uh, fullness until we started out there. All of this seems more glorious in the light of really what my plight is without Christ. And how glorious is this? How wonderful is this? I mean, folks, what in the world, what are we to say to these things? What are we to say? Well, I can tell you, Paul felt the same way. Look at verse 31. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? He must have heard me talking. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I love this. Paul. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, look at all this. All this that I've talked about is what Christ has given us in redemption, in forgiveness of our sins, imputing of righteousness. It has to do with the making of our souls right with God. But what he's saying is that stuff is so powerful and so all-encompassing and so great that if God did that, then all the other stuff that we need in life and that we care about if he did that then how shall he not take care of all this other stuff I'm not gonna worry about all the small stuff if I know he's already taken care of the big stuff he's already rooted out my sin and brought me into relationship with the Father and given me my ticket to heaven for eternity he's done that the rest of this stuff is small stuff oh. So he says in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? I mean, I love this here. Don't you love Paul? I think if I really look at this, I, it looks like Paul at this point, I mean, first of all, when he starts out, what shall we say to these things? He's kind of in the same mode I am right now. You know, like, ah! Folks, you get it? That's probably what he's doing. Ah! You get it? And then he goes in that Setting. I think he's moving over a little bit to a little bit of taunting the devil. Sounds like a taunt here. Who? You get that? Who is he who condemned? It's like he's looking, devil, you think you're gonna condemn me? Give your best shot. Come on. Who do you think is going to do that? He said, It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes heaven intercession for us. What? Back here, we've got the Holy Ghost making intercession for us. Now it tells us Jesus is making. I thought, my God, help me, Jesus. You got God, the Holy Ghost, The third person of the Trinity praying. You got God the Son, the second person of the Trinity praying for us. There's only one more and that's the one they're praying to. So you got two-thirds of the Godhead (laughs) praying to the Father for us every single day. You think you've got a good prayer group. That's my prayer group. I call my prayer group all the time. Verse 35, he says, all I can say is who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. I love this. Paul's always doing this to us. He's he's lifting us up. Who shall separate us? Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Oh, by the way, you want to know something? He said, you're being killed all the day long. You're going to be accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You know what he's saying? I love this. Paul's saying, in all this that I'm telling you, don't forget that you're going to still walk through a lot of hell in your life. You're still going to suffer and there's a lot of stuff that's going to go wrong and you're going to not figure it out and wish you went right. And he's, he's trying to tell us here, don't let that knock you off course. He says, because, look here in verse 37, he says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. You see what he's saying? He said, man, we're going to go a lot of hell. See, what happens to people sometimes, they start out with God, but they don't have a good foundation in these things. So when some crisis happens, I mean, especially if it's a big crisis, then all of a sudden they say, Where is God? They get mad at God and they lose their faith. And now, if you talk to them, they just say, Well, if God was really there, this wouldn't have happened, or He would have done such and such. And I say, Folks, you really don't get this thing. God never promised you that these things wouldn't happen. What he promised you is as you go through them that they would not rule your life. They would not be able to conquer you. They won't steal your joy. They won't steal your peace. They won't steal your victory. They won't steal your faith. Ah, I love that. He says, verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Now this is his final crescendo. I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor in height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, hallelujah. I love that. You get that? Oh, it's like I can see Paul is like, he's waxing poetic now. He said, oh, folks, all I can say is nothing, life, devils, angels, death, hell, nothing, persecution, nothing shall ever be able to separate from the love of God. I love this. Now, this is the gospel. And if you remove the first three and a half chapters, how desperately lost, born in sin that you are, then you miss the whole thing. And today we desperately need people who understand and speak the gospel just as it is. Don't take it out of context. The message is just as good, just good as it is. Ha, ah, can somebody say amen? Hallelujah. Everybody stand to your feet with me just a moment here. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord God, I pray that you'd seal this word inside of them. Father, bless them. Help all of us, God, to be able to stand in this hour and preach the truth. Oh, God, we glorify you and thank you for the cross, your righteousness given to us. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Give Him praise. Thanks for listening today. We pray this message encourages you. If you have any questions or you'd like to learn more about us as a church, you can always visit us online by going to lifechurchstl.com.